Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today, we're going to look back on the last 10 years of independence for South Sudan with our guest, Dr. Luca Biong Dengkul. He's Dean of Academic Affairs at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies in Washington, and previously served as a minister in both the governments of Southern Sudan and Sudan prior to South Sudan's independence. He's speaking to us today in his personal capacity. Dr. Luca, thanks so much for, for joining us on our podcast. Oh, oh, thank you very much, Alan. Now, we're doing this, of course, as a look back after 10 years uh, of South Sudan's independence and, and sort of looking back at how that's gone. It's obviously gone quite horribly, uh, but also reflecting on maybe what could have been different and what the future looks like and, and, and could hold and could be done. Um, and I know you've been uh, thinking a lot about these as well. First of all, just for our listeners, can you describe that Independence Day 10 years ago? I remember that moment. I was in Juba. By then, I went into a problem with the government in, in Khartoum. I resigned. So I went to the, uh, to the stadium. I decided just to be just behind the scene with the normal people. Uh, when the proclamation came in, it was unbelievable excitement. It was like a crowning of a long struggle and with a lot of optimism. I was so impressed, the euphoria and the excitement and the jubilation. And you know, on that day, we thought, yes, we got it. And whether we should be able now to have a better South Sudan, that could actually emulate and to be a good reference to even to the remaining Sudanese to look up to the vision of New Sudan, a, a better place for everybody. Because we emerged with a lot of immense international support, but with the people's feelings and the passion, my feeling was there's no way you can get it wrong. And quickly for our listeners, why did South Sudanese want independence? I think that's a very good question, Alan. And in fact, what happened, the, there was unequal development between Sudan and uh, South, Northern Sudan and South Sudan because the, the British colonial administration focused all the development in, Sudan, in Northern Sudan and they left Southern Sudan to the missionaries and they believed that maybe Southern Sudan is not ready for education. Then when they were leaving, they decided that they want to put the country together. And what they did also beside that one, they created a very, what is called the closed district, of which Southern Sudan was isolated from Northern Sudan, even the Northern Sudanese were having a lot of restriction for them to come to South Sudan. So a clear case that the country was actually prepared to go for the, uh, for the, uh, for the uh, East Africa. And that decision in the last minute led the people of South Sudan, when they were negotiating the independence and even the constitution for the new country after the independence in 1955, it was better with them, we manage our diversity through federalism. Let us have a self-rule. Even Southern Sudanese were actually going for the fact that instead of leaving us with Northern Sudan, we are better off to be even colonized, to, to continue with the colonial administration of the, uh, of the British colonial administration until that time comes that we become annexed to, the, uh, to, to East Africa. Then, the, then after then, they, there was this, after the independence, they were promised that they're going to have a, a self-rule, self-government. <clears throat> but the elites in Sudan, they did not respect that one. They even came in with a very clear case of Arabization and Islamization. And that one continued, yeah, even after the independence. Uh, there were some opportunities, especially in the, uh, after the coming of, of, of Numeri, 
1969 <clears throat> of giving of self-rule, but then it was abrogated and Sudan, South Sudan was divided. That resulted in the Second Civil War. And even during the Civil War, uh, the SPLM, the Sudan People Liberation Movement, under the leadership of, of Dion Gara, people were pursuing for a new Sudan, a Sudan for all the Sudanese, including option of confederal system that can accommodate diversity and for people to coexist. It was a very clear case, but then the Bashir regime, the Islamists, they were seeing that the having South Sudan is going to infringe on the agenda of Islamization. And that's why they were coming very, very persistent of not to accept even confederation or even a federal system. But even they say that is going to be a recipe for the separation. So South Sudanese were actually left with no any other option but to have their own and independent country. Before I move on to some other questions, I'm just curious, given the events that's happened in Sudan, you know, the, the revolution that's gone on there, do you, do you think things in South Sudan might have turned out differently? Perhaps the, you know, such a vote on independence would have come out any differently at all if Bashir wasn't in power anymore in Sudan? Let me, so, you know, let me say you, Alan, the following. The demands of people of South Sudan are very simple. They're self-ruled. In 1955, before the independence, even when British were going, People of Southern said, look, we can coexist the best way we can manage our diversity just to have a self-rule, have a federal system. If this revolution were to take place before the coming in of Bashir rule with the Islamic agenda, imagine such a revolution was to take place and then to have such a type of government that we are seeing now with a revolution that is having a very powerful revolutionary slogan of unity, peace. Even the voices, these are the voices of seeing South Sudan have been talking about a new Sudan, a Sudan of equality, Sudan for all of us, a Sudan of secularism, a Sudan whereby religion should be not to be part of the governing. I wish, I mean, if we, if we were to have such a, an environment, even before the, uh, the eruption of the Second Civil War in 1983, or even before the, uh, the peace agreement, it could have been a different situation. I'm sure that people of South Sudan wanted actually to have a country they will see themselves in it and have their own self-rule. But they have been pushed to this one. I, I agree with you that current political environment, if it, they were to be existing in the 80s or in the mid-80s, even the revolution that took place in the mid-80s, I think South Sudanese would have not gone for the, uh, for the independence and separation from Sudan. Yeah, that's, those are some really interesting reflections. So moving back to, to kind of this run-up to independence, you were part of the pre-independence government as the presidential minister on the, on the southern side and as the, uh, the cabinet minister in, in Sudan as a whole. Was there a particular moment in the run-up to uh, independence or during that period of time where you thought, uh-oh? Yeah, you know, one thing happened. I, I have never been into 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 civil servant. I came in to join the uh, the movement, working on the humanitarian wing of the uh, SPLM. Uh, after the death of Dr. John, I I decided to move on and with with the World Bank. But it was very clear even before moving to the World Bank, I was engaged engaged in the drafting of the national constitution, interim constitution, and southern Sudan interim constitution. I was even engaged in uh, developing template constitution for the ten state of South Sudan. So I was really engaged in the whole process. So when I, after the death of Dr. John, things did not go in the way. And just the beginning, I felt something terrible is happening. It took us a hell of time. That's why I opted to get out and then work with the World Bank. 
But then, you know, I have my own uh, personal relationship with Selfa as well. When I, when I was with the World Bank, I was called in in order to come and assist in his office. That provided a bit of optimism. optimism. And that's the, the, the time that the SPLM as a political party started coming together. But in the middle of managing these, when I became the Minister of Presidential Affairs in the office of the President, I was very, I could say, raw civil servant or politician. I, I didn't have any consistency, although I'm from ABA, but I, it's not my interest actually to get in politics. But I was trying my level best to, to reorganize the office of the President uh, in such a way to deliver and uh, consistent with the with the with the SPLM uh, agenda, and and I to a certain degree, what I could say, succeeded in really managed to organize that office, but then created a problem, a problem of that some of the people still now in the government, they felt like becoming like hurdles for them to get access to the president, saying that I am becoming more like uh, um, emerging as of my own. And they complained to the president, and this is the same group from the same region, from, I mean, Bargazal region. And I submitted my resignation to the president. And I said, look, I, I, you're, some of the elements in the, in the party, but even some people from, you, from the region, this is how they feel. And there are a lot of things move, moving around. I said, look, I, I, I cannot continue this one. For me, that was the beginning that I felt something not right was happening, despite the fact I was doing things in a collegial way with my colleagues in the Australia. Then I went, I went to, to Sudan. I went to, to, to Sudan to become the Minister of uh, Cabinet Affairs. This is a very big, a big, a big position. One thing I observed, that there was a very clear retreat by the SPLM leadership of the agenda of the new Sudan. But I see what happened the South Sudanese leaders, or the SPLM leaders, retreated to the, the separation agenda. Some of us, I can say collective, all of us, were so this euphoric that we are going to have our country, and we did not have a chance, we did not look critically to some of the challenges that we are going to, to face. It is true, when I was in the office of the, of the presidential affairs, I was in charge of the implementation of the uh, peace agreement. And one of the things was to prepare the ground what is called the post-referendum task force. And by then, Victoria was very there, and then we organized uh, ourselves into team to prepare ourselves of, of what, from, from issues of governance, issues of the constitutions, uh, issues of about the basic elements of the, of the nation, the flag, the anthem, and all these things. The way we saw independence, most of the leaders in the SPLM we saw it as an end by itself. It was not the means of delivering a good service to the citizen. And that, that is where we miss it. We miss a lot of things. We could have asked ourselves, look, what, what, what actually binding us is the common enemy. We did not look into ourselves. What do we have? What should we be able to look into ourselves? And then I can talk later on about the issue of constitutional making mechanism. was a flawed process. It was exclusive. But anyhow, to tell you the truth, some of us were looking at the independence of Southern Sudan as an end by itself, rather than the means of delivering uh, the slogans of independent delivery service to the citizen. Yeah, it wasn't just South Sudanese, of course. I, my experience dealing with international diplomats at the time, too, was that independence was also sort of seen as the end of this long peace process in Sudan. There wasn't a lot of thinking about 
about what a, a South Sudan independence or, or plan for it afterwards would, would look like either. I'm just, you mentioned the constitution, and I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, because you, you saw that up close, what, why was it that South Sudanese really didn't get a chance to, to negotiate what their country would, would look like uh, structurally? Um, there, there were, of course, historic demands for federalism, and the constitution sometimes is just a technical document in countries, but can also serve as a, as a means of sort of negotiating a political settlement among constituencies and, and groups in a country. So, so, so how is it that that ended up not really happening in South Sudan? Let me be very, maybe I know people may not agree, but I wanted to, to share with you, Selfakir, based my knowledge about him, is a very a consensual leader. He always relied on, by the time I was there, relied on the consensus and the views of the people around him. There's no way Selfakir could take any decision that is inconsistent or not in conformity with the consensus of the people. What happened even, to give you some of the, some of the examples, one of the things he delegated even before the uh, independence, some of his powers to, the, uh, to his vice president, uh, Dr. Riyad Machel. These are some exclusive powers of the president. And it was based on the advice that it was very important to share the, the presidency and leadership of the South uh, towards the independence. Victoria was more or less like running the, the, the government because he was having a lot, many powers given to him by the president. And even for all of us, even those, whether those people in the former detainees or those in the, uh, in the opposition, in fact, I could say, Selfa could give you, point you as a minister, he would give you an exclusive authority, cannot interfere, could not interfere with your work. He will allow you to do what you see the best. Maybe not having a close monitoring of, of the minister could be one of the shortcomings, but I think I could say it was giving a space for each of us for, to, to deliver what we see appropriate. And imagine towards, towards the independence, then people start talking about blaming game of that selfer, you, you really, you fail, you did not deliver, and you need all now to hand over power, and then some of people wanted to compete. And it, I, I know he talked to me even personally that he wanted after the independence, he would not be longer interesting in power. Then you have these people, a barrage of blame that you have failed, you are not, you are not delivering, you are, leading, you are failing and all these things. That is the beginning of how the president started now becoming defensive. Even because his interest not to continue, he was pushed against the wall. And that is the beginning of how he started now looking for other allies, people that I could say, most of them, they have a very uh, well connected with, I could say, the first government. And I could say some of the cadres within the SPLM really pushed the agenda of changing of leadership within the leadership of the SPLM was very, very early. And it was not structured. It was very confrontational rather than going for the institution of the, uh, of the SPLM. This is where we miss the, uh, the chunks. And that is the beginning of the rift within the, uh, within the, uh, within the SPLM. This is the genesis of the, whole, of the whole crisis of the division that happened within the, uh, within the, towards the, uh, the independence and even after the independence. And there could be other reasons, and for me, it is the way the SVLM cadres managed to, to manage themselves. They could have done it differently, and even my advice to many of them, it is not the time if they were to give themselves to consolidate their, the independence, make sure that you lay down a good foundation, and then you can start the democratization process within the SVLM. 
it is not to be personalized. That's you, 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 you fail. Actually, if there was a failure collectively, you cannot be just saying just only one person is that the one who failed. And, and, and so I think that's the beginning of shifting the blame to one person and the, and the premature of for them to unsee the president. That was actually willing to do in a very disgraceful way. And then that one resulted in this rift and self-becoming people, some other people uh, captured that opportunity around him. And that's the beginning of the whole, of the whole crisis. Hi, everyone. We will be back in a moment, but first a message from our friends at Foreign Policy. Could empowering women in the workplace be the simplest way to boost the global economy? The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women is a new limited series podcast from Foreign Policy. Host Rina Nainan talks to women around the world, in places like Kenya, Nigeria, and India, who are changing the status quo in surprising ways. Listen to The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've talked a lot about the Civil War and the peace process on this podcast already. Um, Because of time, I'd like to actually zoom ahead and look forward. You know, what is the state of play as you see it uh, now after the peace deal? We've talked a lot about how things went wrong before independence and directly after independence. And then, of course, you had this very brutal civil war that killed hundreds of thousands of of South Sunnis, which is just absolutely a shocking number. I think it's difficult for people to realize just the scale of the devastation. What can be done now and and how do you see the current situation? Is it possible for South Sunnis to sort of have a redo uh, in a way of the state formation? I think let us say we have a collective responsibility to have a portion of the of the blame but definitely the incumbent leaders they have a proportional responsibility of how they can be able to provide a conducive environment of undoing what we are seeing today but what are the opportunities available now for south sudan to undo what we are seeing the conditions are not dry for you to have a very fair and and, and uh, fair election, given the fact that you have one third of the of the population is are displaced or in the refugee camp, we don't have a very good feel for the election uh, because given even there's uh, the pockets of insecurity now in South Sudan and also the division and mistrust that is available. I think despite all these things, I I strongly believe this the elections could be a good way to get the context right. What we are seeing in South Sudan today. We have the dominant of these two leaders in the political scenes of South Sudan. And the president becoming determinal, whether they have a shared power, through the shared power agreement, becoming determinal to the stability of South Sudan. It is true, as we talk now, whether we like it or not, uh, President Selva is in a far better position in terms of consolidating his leadership. And if you go for election, I mean, it is very easy because there's no any... Any, any people who are going to, to compete with, with him. And he's going to win because having the machinery of government, he can be able to do that. one. But the point I'm saying is that if you go for elections, and they have option within the, within the agreement, they can be able, and now they have the parliament, and with the, they can be able to change and then to extend the, uh, the, uh, the transition period and to continue governing based on power sharing agreement, which is going, going to be really uh, increasing the suffering of the people of Southern Sudan. But I think having election, it is even within the interest of Selfa and Victoria. Let the people have the choice about their leaders. But if they contest for election, it is the right. 
But if the contest election, the outcome is going to be zero-sum game. But also, given that now they don't have a, a powerful political parties, and their allegiance and their support base is going to widen the division within the country. And this will, will be followed by either not accepting their outcome or, or even having, having violence. There could be eruption of violence, and division could even, even aggravate it and, and, and sharpen. The second option is to have election without the two of them. And that one could not happen unless they accept. Why it is within their interest to have election without them? Although there could be, uh, there could, they, they could win, some of them could, I mean, self can win the election. But it is not the outcome itself. Because if the outcome is going to actually divide the people of Southern Sudan, divide the people even further along the ethnic line, that is not the good Southern Sudan we want. And I think that's why some of us, we believe that incentivizing the two leaders not to, to contest for election, it is absolutely very important. But it should be, they should be with their acceptance. Uh, but if they continue to contest, we know the outcome is going to be really a very, a very disastrous for, for the South Sudan. And be, beside that one, you know, we should invest also in the constitution. That constitution, for me, is the one that is, 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 a, is, a, is a flawed constitution. Is actually the one accentuating the instability that we are seeing in South Sudan. And, and that's why we may need to have a constitutional process that is actually being people-centered, but even to have the voices of people not only inside South Sudan, but even the, the displaced people, even the refugees and the diaspora. And there are some key issues that could be picked out to people to be consulted. But if you have cycled the same people who produced that constitution, that actually created this infragility, I mean fragility in, in Southern Sudan, we are going to have the same constitution that is not going to address the needs and the aspiration of the people of South Sudan. Following up on that quickly, Dr. Luca, you know, we also at Crisis Group, we've written and, and talked a fair amount about the importance of the constitution. I mean, something we hear quite a bit is why, why the focus on the constitution? Uh, there's a bit of skepticism that a document like that really is is much of a solution if, for instance, President Kier doesn't even follow what, what's written there. I'm, I'm just wondering why, why, why you think what hopes you have in the Constitution, why you think it's it's an important document for where South Sudan's at right now? The Constitution, the interim, the, the interim Constitution of South Sudan, that developed in 2005, it, it was a Constitution that reflected the, the revolutionary values of the people of South Sudan and the SPLM. Very fundamental issues, issue of a decentralized system or even a federal system. As a clear separation of powers. And you know, one of the things that, and even this issue of indigenous languages and the check and balance and all these things, though that constitution actually laid down a very good foundation. The minimum the constitutional process now should do is to reaffirm those achievements, the political achievements that achieved during the CPA. A very clear excess of powers to the president, and, 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 and I could say it's not the president to be blamed. It is, it is those, the, the parliament that actually managed to, I mean, really managed to give inside power to the president because the constitution was made in their mind, the regime, and the president rather than the, pe- the people themselves. So, what are the opportunities I'm seeing? So, restore those ones a clear case of, of check and balances, suppression of powers reaffirming the, the federal system. People can differ, but at least what type of federalism is an, a debate that may, people may need to, to look into it. And, and I'm one of the people I believe that might wider debate about it. In fact, even this issue of uh, do you need a 10 state, do you need a three state, or should you have three regions uh, and have provinces and then uh, or, or district? 
these are some of the debate and, and should should you have also even this is the fundamental question should you have a, a, a presidential system or parliamentary system and and many studies have shown how the presidential system is likely not to create a space for the democratic process and then the parliamentary system seems to be better than the, uh, the the presidential system because these are some of the fun, if you be able and then the issue of the the term limits the term limits is you know there's no way you can have this cycle of actually extending it extending it the term limits must be very clearly identified and even for south sudanese they have to have a very clear debate among themselves really what type of state they would like to have for example you have issue of the uh, the livestock uh, movement and all these things. Because if we said, for example, we are going to have a federal system, then we have to have the right of a citizen of Southern Sudan to stay and to work and to do, to exercise the citizen right wherever they would like to be. I think that one is very important because federal system is not actually to create a, an ethnic territory or the regional territory that should exclude others. Because a citizen of Southern Sudan should have a right to exercise the right of any citizen anywhere they would like to be. And I think these are some of the things that I feel uh, that why the, uh, the Constitution is a very important document that can be able to lay a good foundation to forge a new social contract between the citizen and the state, but even between the citizen among themselves. What should make South Sudan is to be proud about themselves. Thanks, Dr. Luca. We're, we're running out of time, but there was a few more questions I just wanted to run past you. Quickly, I'm just wondering, you know, you basically on the on the question about elections, for very obvious reasons, you know, think it's very important for South Sudanese to, to be able to have the, the right, of course, to, to choose their leaders. But you also mentioned, of course, it could be a disaster if Kier and uh, Machar do run against each other. Do you see any real prospect of getting them to step aside? There is a possibility. For example, I know for sure Things have changed now. Someone like President Selfa, he is interested in leaving behind a legacy. And that legacy is likely to be tarnished the more he continues in the government. And, and the situation of affairs now in the country, I am sure he's aware of it. That would not be the best thing that he should be thinking about. And that's why at a certain point he was indicating that the fact that after the independence, he wanted to leave a country and uh, because that is mission has been fulfilled. If people are approaching it in such a way, a blaming game that, that he's the one actually failing the country, I think that one may not be a saleable option. But if people agree that, look, we committed all this mistake, the country, where they're going, it is not you alone, all of us, but definitely there's a better opportunity to create that conducive environment to get the country out of it. I don't want to talk about the national dialogue because they uh, I know the official document, I'm not sure about it. Uh, which one is the official document and if it is available, it's not a public. But if it is true what we are hearing, that the voices of the citizen is very clear, that they would like uh, the, these two leaders uh, uh, to step aside and to, and to give chance to others, I think then, then that one could be a good way people should be, should be able to use it. But it still is a very weak argument. If people are saying that, you know, like we want you to step down, the president has the right, he said, yes, I can step down, but the election is the only way you can tell me that I cannot be, they don't want me. And that's why for them to get the incentive, why it is within their interest to, to step down. I have a feeling it is likely, but people may need to look at the, not only the international community, uh, look for the influential people who will be able to pass the message in a positive way. 
and, and that could be providing opportunity for a legacy that he should be able to leave behind. It is possible, but it should be approached carefully. There's a possibility that uh, Rieg may say no, hmm? uh, because Rieg has been, but Rieg, he, he knows also his political base is eroding very badly, and uh, I think it will be difficult for him to continue going ahead. And it is likely, if I were to be President Selfa, I could even say, look, Rieg let us step down, and if Rieg decided to continue to contest for the election, I think that one, it is easier because I think it will be very uh, clear that Rieg is, is aware about his uh, political capital that he's having now at the moment is really very, very, very weak. Uh, and, and that's why I, I, I think Rieg may be having more incentive for him to, to, to accept as well. Now, finally, um, you know, we've talked about this in the in the past, and I wanted to, to give you just a chance to, to speak very uh, briefly about it, if you can, which is, uh, you're from Abie, which is this uh, disputed uh, district on the border between uh, Sudan and, and South Sudan. Obviously, it, its status has not been resolved, even though there was a, a mechanism for a referendum, which never took place for, for the Abie residents to, to choose uh, whether to be part of Sudan or, or what became of South Sudan. Can you just quickly describe, you know, how you see this being resolved eventually? Yeah, thank you very much, Alan, for asking me this an issue in my heart. And, um, you know, the issue of Abia is one of the issues that got complicated by the regime in, in, in Sudan, especially by Bashir and his... Uh, uh, because we exhausted all the avenues for a conflict resolution, whether being going to the um, to Hague for the Permanent Court of Arbitration to define the territory of the area, and then the, the Permanent Court of Arbitration, the ruling was very clear to make sure that the, uh, those who are going to vote, they demarcate the area in such a way to give the right of indigenous people, the Nogdinka, to decide about their future. So even after the Bashir or the National Congress Party refused, African Union came up with a solution. Uh, the, the, the 2012 a proposal by the African Union, by President Mbeki, of the final status of IBA, proposal for final status of IBA, and very clear proposal. It got accepted by the Peace and Security Council of the African Union, and this is the recognized as the best solution and the African solution, and they even it forwarded it to the, uh, to the Security Council. Security Council recognized it as well. Uh, yeah, that is the African solution. I see what is missing, it was the political will from Sudan. By then, Sudan of Bashir, was not even ready to, in order to, to accept the proposal of African Union. And the, the proposal is very clear. So the, the, the uh, African Union proposal is saying that, look, the share will be the African Union, and then the two countries will have a two representative and should be a, a, a referendum to be overseen by the African Union, which is a very a valuable uh, solution. But even they went further than this one, how the oil itself from Abia should benefit the communities, the neighboring communities of Mongdinka, especially the Nigeria international community. And the Sudan, the new Sudan government that is in power should respect the decision of the African Union, the Peace and Security Council, and to embrace the African Union proposal on the final status of RBA. But the implementation of it, it needs to have a more rigorous engagement at the local level. Uh, for me, people should create a conducive environment even for the two countries to, to decide. If you go for a referendum today, people of Abia are going to vote to go to the south. 
but arrange the special issue of oil. It should be agreed upon. Even even if you have a beer going to the to south, even after the referendum, the the issue of the material they need to be to be negotiated, and especially for them to have a certain uh, presence in order to ensure their interest in the uh, in the in the area. And and definitely, I, I think the issue of reconciliation at local level is very important, so that the Missouri should not feel themselves as threatened by the choice of the people of IBA. And I think this local initiative to be linked with regional initiative is extremely important. And that's why I came across some of the uh, the initiative by President Selva to institute a high level committee to to on the final status of IBA is a positive one. But I think it would have been good if such a thing to happen also from the side of the government of Sudan. But it would be good, even better, if the African Union to come with a reconciliation commission headed by people like Mbeki to look at the communities at the local level, how the best they can be able, how they can be able to come together and to understand that they have have a common purpose. They don't have any other option except to coexist. Parameters of solving ABA issues are quite clear, especially with the new with the new administration in in Khartoum, with with the revolution that actual hosted. Bashir, who was actually very determined for the crisis in IBA. Thanks, Dr. Luca, for, for coming on our podcast and, and, and sharing all these views with us. Well, thank you very much, Alan. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Crisis Group's work at crisisgroup.org. Just to also add that Dr. Luca has written his own reflections on lessons from South Sudan's 10th anniversary, and we'll post that link in the show notes. Also, Crisis Group's weekly global podcast, Hold Your Fire, also interviewed me about the same topic, and we'll cross-post that here on The Horn this week for our listeners as well. I'm Alan Boswell. This episode was produced by Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi. <laughs>